Uh, so we're in uh, this passage. Now, last week we were talking about suffering and um, how that we can live a blessed life even through that. And he talked about how we live differently than everyone else. But then he even goes to the point that this is one thing that's going to happen. As you and I live differently, other people are going to see it. And they're going to wonder how it is that we get along with each other. Because he talks about having unity of mind, sympathy, and brotherly love, and all these different things. He even talks about how that we are to, when people say bad things about us, we're to say good things to them. When people uh, do bad things to us, we, we return good things. We uh, try to live differently. And uh, now, he told us that as a rule, verse 13, that when you do good and you're zealous for that, you know, people aren't going to harm you. I mean, basically, that's right. But there are exceptions. And there were some of these people that Peter was writing to. Because when I understand the Bible, I want to get the context. And I want to understand the situation that was present when this was written and inspired by God. And the people who first read it, what was going on there is directly to them. But it's also to us. And then how that applies to us. So what I want to do, and this is always exciting to me, is to take the scripture and unpack it. And bring out the meaning and apply it to our lives. We want to be very careful not to take a preconceived idea and try to cram it in there and make it fit, right? We just want to take the scriptures and let them come out. Uh, that's what it's all about. There are plenty of people out there having their own ideas and trying to find scriptures to make it seem like that they're right. But what I'd rather do is just take what the Bible says, let it come out, and let us apply it to our lives. So we know that this was written during difficult times. Far more difficult than what you and I are going through during times of the Roman Empire. Nero is the emperor and persecution and trouble is, is, is starting to abound, especially for those who are Christians. And many of them are trying to live life like God wants them to. They're trying to be good citizens. He even talks about being good citizens and good employees. He even talks about husbands and wives treating each other differently than what their culture was even familiar with, men honoring women in a way that that, that culture didn't even understand. He's talked about all these different things. And when you do this, and especially when you're suffering and you're being maligned and you're being persecuted and you return good, people are going to wonder what's going on with you. You're not like everybody else. They want to know what makes you tick. And then like verse 15, he tells us that gives you an opportunity to give an answer, to give a reason, to give a defense for the hope that you have. But be sure you do it like with meekness and gentleness and fear and reverence. So this is the backdrop of this. So understand, are you with me here? As we're in verse 18, where he says, for Christ also suffered. So he's talking about suffering. He's been talking about how, yes, some are suffering because uh, uh, there's increasing persecution. And despite living good, honest, holy lives, many of them are being, and they are being maligned. And they are, some of them are actually being killed because of their faith in Christ. I don't think it's that bad where we live. We think we got it bad. So put yourself in that context. A lot of them, or most of them, were making or continuing to make an incredible impact on the world around them. But I'm sure some of them were getting discouraged, right? I mean, because I'm trying to do right, I'm trying to do good, and I'm getting, you know, people are turning on me, you know, they fired me from my job because, 
of what? Because I tried to be a good person? You know, I wasn't participating in some of the, the off-color things and the different things that were going on. And, you know, I'm trying to do right, and my family's disowned me, you know, because I'm not going to the temple and worshiping the same idol that they're worshiping. And there's different things like this happening. So some of them are thinking, you know, you know, trusting Christ has made my life a lot more complicated, you know? And so I'm not feeling, I'm not necessarily feeling the victory right now. Is what happened in your life? Lord, I'm trying to worship you. I'm trying to just open up to you. Lord, I'm trying to find the path you have for me. I'm trying to walk obediently with your strength to help me do that. And it just seems like things are getting worse, Lord. It just seems like things just keep happening. And I don't understand. And I'm just not feeling the victory. You can say amen if you want to. Because there's always those times in life. That's where it was for a lot of these people. And he gives us some things that help us and equip us to live victoriously. Are you with me? To live victoriously even when the going gets really rough, really tough, and unfair. Okay? When people these, the people these days think about this thing, they like, we like to appeal to uh, what we call karma, Right? Uh, you know, we get a lot of different ideas mixed up, but this is what comes out in our society that, you know, if you do good things, good things will happen. You do bad things, bad things will happen. And we like to think that's the way it should all pan out. And uh, Peter says, as a rule, when you're zealous for good, then people are not going to harm you, right? As a rule, but there are exceptions. And so that doesn't always work like that in this life, that there are times you are going to do good and you're going to think good and you're going to say good. And yet bad things could happen. But know this, he's saying, when that occurs, God has a higher purpose. Listen, God never, for the, for, for the believer, he never wastes. I don't, I don't particularly like this, but I'm glad it's true, okay? Because I don't like going through it. How about you? God never wastes suffering or trials. And it's good to know that, I don't know, Follow me on the grammar here if you can. <laughs> that it ain't for nothing, <laughs> right? It's not for, I mean, there is a purpose for it. It's not just, you know, for nothing. God has a purpose. He has something higher that he's doing. But in order to get a perspective on suffering uh, because of righteousness, because you're doing what is right, you're living in the right way, he says, here's what you should do. If that's happening to you, first of all, you need to know there's a higher purpose, and that's one thing we're going to explore in this. But you need to also Look to Jesus, the one that you're trusting for your salvation. Look to Jesus. And that's what he starts off here in verse 18, telling them that they should look to Jesus because the greatest example of suffering. And, and you know what? We see there that great suffering often produces great, the greatest triumphs. And we see that there. So he's appealing, look to your Savior. When he actually was in the process of paying for your sins. It was seemed unfair. We didn't understand. Peter was there, right? John, James, they were there. They saw it. They saw him arrested. They saw him beaten. They saw him humiliated. They saw him treated worse than you treat an animal. They saw him executed in the most torturous way that had been devised. The term we have in our language, excruciation, excruciating, actually means ex, means out of, and the rest of that word, excruciating, it means the cross. So there's a word that when they want to talk about something that's indescribably bad, excruciating uh, is a word they came up with because the cross was the most horrible thing, that a horrible means of execution that had been devised. They watched it happen. 
And it seemed like they didn't understand. They didn't think it was going to end this way. You can tell from the story. They didn't think that this is how the Messiah was going to go down. They, they still believed he was going to rule and reign. They were so confused. They hid. They huddled in fear. But yet at that moment, he's saying, what we didn't know was the greatest victory of all was being won. Well, what we saw was the greatest suffering of all. This is the paradox that we've got right here. Uh, so remember, Jesus talked to us about taking up the cross and following him. Remember that? If you've read the Bible much, you've read that. Well, we kind of think taking up the cross means just carrying a burden. No, 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 no. And that day, when you saw someone carrying a cross, it meant one thing, one-way journey. And that he was going to die on that cross. Part of the punishment was they carried the cross to the place of execution. So I think we don't always understand. And there have been thousands of martyrs, people who have died for their faith, that have been willing to die throughout church history. And they were willing to do it, and they were willing to do it with joy. And like Stephen, crying out for God to be merciful on the very people who were murdering them because they armed themselves with the same purpose as Jesus Christ. And that's what he's asking them to do. God wants us to see here that he himself has set the example and that you can know that you can be faithful to the Father no matter what, knowing the cross precedes the crown. He wants us to see Jesus has set, God himself has set the example and that all accounts aren't settled in this life. Okay? And he wants us to see, are you listening? He wants us to see a broader perspective and be equipped with a greater purpose. That's what I need in my life. I need to have a broader perspective and be equipped with a greater purpose for my existence in my life. And the thing that he appeals to is Jesus. And so we're going to talk about victory in Jesus. That's what he says. For Christ, verse 18, look at it. Get your Bible out there. Look at it on your app. For Christ also suffered for once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. If you're following along at home, I want you to have your Bible. I'm not putting all these verses up there. I want you to get your Bible out so you're looking at it with us, okay? So if you feel like you're being mistreated because you're doing good, Peter says, as I mentioned, think about Jesus who suffered and died for your sorry self. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was a little bit overboard there. For your life and your sins. Um, he did this for you. The righteous for the unrighteous. He was the only one that was perfect. And we find out in the Bible that death occurs because of sin. Wages of sin is death. Death happens because of sin. But yet Jesus never sinned, yet he died. So technically he shouldn't have even died, but yet he did die because of sin. But it was my sin and it was your sin that was put on him. I don't know about you, but I just can't take that lightly. He did this for you. And that's what we're focusing on here. And the price that he paid for sins is good for all time. Notice it said he did it once. Unlike the repeated sacrifices in the Old Testament that were always repeated. And, and th those, those were just pointing to the great sacrifice that he was going to make. So one time he did this that he might bring us to God. That was the whole point. He wants to bring lost he wants to bring sinful people who are separated from a perfect, holy God. Remember, God is perfect and holy. Heaven is a perfect and holy place. Only perfect can, people can live forever in a perfect place with a perfect God and not mess the place up. And so this was God's plan to make us sinners perfect. And part of it, a big part of it was he himself had to come 
and pay for that sin. And that's where the suffering came in. And he did this for you, the righteous for the unrighteous. And the good news is, is that because he did this, you now have spiritual life. See, we were dead spiritually. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And you say, well, no, I was alive. No, you had physical life, but spiritually you were dead. Now, you guys remember that in the Bible, death is more, it doesn't mean that you cease to exist. In the Bible, death always means separation. That when you experience physical death, it's when your soul and spirit separate from your body. Your body dies. Uh, uh, physical death. Spiritual death is being separated from God by our sins. And then the Bible speaks of eternal death, and that is being separated from God forever. Okay? Uh, but uh, the good news is, if you've trusted Christ and what he did on the cross, you can now have spiritual life. Did you know that? And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he tells us we were dead. We were dead, spiritually dead, trespasses and sins. And then in verse 4, he says this, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead, has now, guess what, made us alive together with Christ. We've been made alive together with Christ as Christ conquered death and, and, and came to life. We have been made alive together with him. And he makes sure we don't forget, by grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's so powerful that he did this for you. And then in verse 21, as we read earlier, he tells us that our baptism is actually even an illustration of this. Do you know that? Your baptism is a powerful illustration of it. And, 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 Colossians, and Paul taught the same thing. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, having been buried with him, with Christ, in baptism. And by the way, it's not that the method of baptism is what saves you, but this is one reason why we do the method that we do of, of total immersion because it, it does present the picture uh, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as we go down into the water and then come up out of the water. And when you bury something, normally you put it underneath the ground, right? And that's the reason why we do that. Uh, but he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. See the imagery there? Buried and raised. And that's why we act that out in our physical baptism. It says, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, you know, this isn't something I'm doing on my own. I'm trusting Christ and even my baptism is a witness that by faith I am trusting in Jesus's death, burial, and the power of his resurrection. His death to pay for my sins, the wage of sin is death, and then his resurrection gives me new life. I have resurrected life. I have spiritual life. And he tells us that there. So by faith you're identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now he's careful to point out in verse 21, if you look at it, that he's not uh, he, he, it's not the physical aspect of just dipping yourself into water that washes your sins away. It's not the physical thing of baptism. It is the spiritual thing that that physical part represents. It's a symbol. That's all it is. It's a symbol. So when you were baptized, it was a symbol to illustrate the thing that does save you. And that is putting your faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection uh, on your behalf for your sins. So he says, that's what we're talking about. It illustrates it. And this is a, he says, this is corresponds to it, or it's a figure or a symbol of it. So you're blessed and you have victory. Why? Because Jesus paid the price for your sins with his death on the cross. 
Because of that, even though you're suffering, you need to know, even right now, you have new life. You have new life, spiritual life. And even though your resurrection is still to come, you might say, well, I know I have spiritual life, but boy, I tell you, things are not going great. I don't feel very alive. Even though your resurrection is still to come, you already have spiritual life. You need to know that. And that's what he's going to illustrate next, that, that resurrection. Paul says, I haven't attained it yet. Because in the resurrection, we're going to even get a new physical body. That one of these days, see, see, because of sin, my body is cursed, right? I have a sinful nature that I struggle and battle with. Every day, even though I'm a new creature in Christ, I still live in this body of flesh that's been cursed by sin, and I struggle with the flesh, right? Um, one of these days, though, I'm going to be perfect. My soul was corrupted, my mind, my will, and emotion. Spiritually, I was dead. I was separated from God. One of these days, spirit, soul, and body are going to be all perfect in the resurrection. I mean, we're going to have a body that won't age. I mean, we just don't know too much about it, or we would be so obsessed with it, we couldn't stand it. But the thing about it is, at the resurrection, you're going to be perfect I'm going to be perfect because of what Jesus did and the power of his resurrection. He's preparing us for that right now, okay? All right. So one of these days, you're going to have to admit, you know, you're going to have to come up to admit, like, man, you are perfect. And I'll say, well, so are you. And we'll all give glory to Jesus because it all comes because of him. Amen? Uh, But we've not reached that yet. We've not reached that. Now, in this time between trusting Christ and having... Uh, been saved and that perfection he wants you to know you already have spiritual life even in the in-between time because it may not feel so great at times you're going through tough times you're going through suffering you need hope here's some hope he's sending right to you jesus illustrated that are you with me we're gonna go now we're gonna go in there right now are you ready we're gonna go into some weird stuff here (laughs) because he's saying jesus illustrated even that when he died in the flesh, but was made alive in the spirit. Look at verse uh, 18, 19. He says that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Look at verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. What in the world is he talking about there? That is some weird stuff. We don't know all that happened, folks. But between the time that Jesus died on the cross on Friday and was put in the tomb, and between that and the time that he appeared outside the tomb in his resurrected body on Sunday morning, some things happened, all right? We don't get a lot of info about that, but this is what he's talking about. And I don't think he's talking about when he says he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. I don't think that it's talking about the resurrection yet because in the resurrection he was made alive not just in the spirit but in the body okay so this is something that happened before that in his spirit that he went and he did this he experienced the spiritual death for you and I that's what that's talking about because part of the payment of my sin is to be separated from God that's why I was spiritually dead. And I can't explain it, but on those, in those moments on the cross, Jesus also even experienced not just the wrath of God against my sin and your sin. He even experienced our spiritual death. He even experienced our separation from God. That's what hell is all about, is being separated from God forever. He even, in those moments on the cross, experienced my hell and your hell. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't understand. I can't explain it. But at that moment, the father, as we say, had to turn his back 
on his son, that he experienced the separation. That was the most painful part of all of it. So he experienced the spiritual death, but then he also was made alive. He won for us, bought for us, paid for us spiritual life. Now, this is mysterious, this passage, right? You ever read it before? And you're like, what? Okay, it's mysterious. It's supposed to be. And uh, we don't know everything that happened between his death on the cross and the resurrection Sunday morning. Bible doesn't tell us much about it. I'm sure, you know, Peter, hey, think about it. He was one of those guys that spent time with Jesus after he was resurrected and before he ascended. And I'm sure Jesus told him some things, right? And I'm sure he had talked about some of those things around these people. God, they kind of understood what he's talking about. God just didn't see fit for all that to be recorded that we needed to know about it. But he alludes to something here. And what I want to do is I want to just kind of mention a few things because I want you to know that scholars have debated and analyzed for thousands of years over this passage. Now, if scholars have debated and analyzed all the details of what this all might involve through thousands of years, and me not being much of a scholar, I'm going to try not to lay a lot of my uh, deeper thoughts on you. What I want to do is say he's trying to make a point here. What is it? I mean, you know, you can do that in Bible study. You can dive in there and you can absolutely miss the forest for all the trees, right? You can do that. You can miss the forest for all. You can miss the main point. And there is a point he's trying to make. There's a lesson he's trying to teach. Don't miss that. Uh, he wants us to know that while the world thought Jesus was dead, while they thought the ultimate bad thing had happened, he wants you to know that at that very moment, victory was being proclaimed over the enemy. That even now, when you think things aren't going well, even now, when you think you're defeated, there is still victory. You just haven't seen it yet. But you will. Proclaiming Jesus was at that moment during those days on Saturday, on the Sabbath, that they were huddled in fear, hiding from the council, hiding from the soldiers, not sure if they were going to be crucified next. They didn't understand. We thought he was going to rule and reign, but now he's dead. We watched him die. We'll never get that out of our minds. What, what were they thinking? You ever try to suppose that? He wants you to know that even at that moment, what they didn't know, that in his spirit, Jesus was proclaiming his victory over the enemy, even at that moment. Even at that moment. So the point is that even though some had already died, some of them had already died, and even though those alive aren't, feeling very perfect yet. They haven't received their resurrected bodies, even though they have not been delivered yet from the sin-cursed flesh, and we still are having to live in the sin-cursed world. He wants them to know that they've already been made alive in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in your spirit. You have been made alive. You have hope that is alive even right now. You need to know this. And this strange reference right here uh, is used as an illustration for this. Um, these spirits that it says that he went in verse 19 and proclaimed to the spirits in prison and that somehow they're connected to some things that happened in the days before the flood. And we go to Genesis chapter 6 and we see another really weird story right there that's hard to understand. Um, and I think these, these spirits, he's talking about fallen angels. I believe that because I don't think he's talking about people so much because with people, usually they use the word for soul rather than spirit, 
Okay. And, uh, and so I think that's what he's talking about. Because with Satan, uh, a host of the angels rebelled against God. They are fallen angels. And um, we also refer to them as demons. And it says, it seems to indicate that there was that activity in Genesis 6 that they saw the daughters of men uh, were desirable. And they took, not just that they went down and did something to them, they, they took them as wives. So, so was these, these angelic demons taking human form or were they possessing people? I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. But I do know this. The world was so corrupted during that time that God destroyed it and started over. I do know that. I do believe personally this, that it involved Satan trying to destroy and disrupt the plan of salvation. Had God not already said in the Garden of Eden and Satan heard it himself because he said that the seed of the what? The woman will come and will deliver a fatal blow, a crushing blow to the enemy's head, to Satan's head. He knew that. And so the seed of the woman, they didn't understand it. You and I know that that's referring to a virgin birth, right? But they didn't understand, I think, a whole thing. But what happened seemed to focus on women, the seed of the woman. And what they wanted to do, I think, was corrupt the whole human race where that could not happen. I think that they thought if we can corrupt the whole human race, then that won't be able to happen and that deliverer will not come and his head will not be crushed. Satan's head will not be crushed. And they almost succeeded. And even though God found uh, Noah, who trusted him and believed him, had faith in him, and Noah found favor, grace in God's sight, and Noah preached for 120 years while the ark was being prepared, you have to say, you know, by today's standards, his ministry wasn't very successful because outside his own family, nobody listened. So look at it this way. With the exception of one family, eight people that the enemy, by whatever he was doing here, had corrupted all the rest of the human race. So I think you would have to say it looked like Satan had almost succeeded in thwarting the plan that God had to bring a savior into the world. And he was going to do it through a, woman, through a woman. She was going to be the vehicle through which he entered the world. And uh, so it says that the patience of God waited. That's amazing. Because I think of patience as waiting. And it was so bad that it says even God's patience was waiting. The word translated patience, there's a Greek word macrothumia. You know, macro it means it means great, and thumia is something that means hot or tempered. And so basically that means God was long-tempered, and even his long-temperedness was waiting and patient with that world. Think about it. The whole human race was so corrupt, so possessed by Satan, and under the control of Satan, there were only eight people who found grace and were delivered, Noah and his family. Yet these wicked spirits did not succeed in corrupting the human race, did they? They, are you with me? Come on, I know, you gotta, you gotta, get your, not only get your heart open, get your thinking cap on, all right? Because I want you to know that um, not only that, they did not succeed in corrupting the whole human race, they did not stop God's plan of redemption. 
Evidently, when the world was judged by water and destroyed and all those people were destroyed, evidently, I think at that time, these spirits who did that, these demons who did that were also judged. And because of that, were locked away because of their behavior, waiting final judgment. Now, we know Satan is loose like a roaring lion. Peter refers to that later. But some of the demons uh, and some of the fallen angels are active. But there's some of them, it seems to be, are locked away because of their disobedience and they're in prison. He refers to this again in 2 Peter. Jude alludes to it. So this is a few times this comes up. It's something they understood, but God doesn't think we have to understand. But from what we know, we can deduce that there are some of these evil spirits, some of these demons that are locked away. Uh, In 2 Peter, he uses the term Tartarus, which was a Greek word that had to do with the deepest prison. Um, the bottomless pit, perhaps, the abyss, that's what that means. Now, we know some of the demons were familiar with this because you remember, do you remember many times when Jesus came along and someone was demon-possessed, they would try to cry out, we know who you are, you're the son of the living God, and he'd say, hush up, I don't want people believing because of demons, right? You don't have faith because of what they say. He, He hushed them up. And many times they ask, have you come to torment us before the time? They know there's a time. These are reserved, reserved in chains, it tells us elsewhere, for judgment. Like I said, Jude mentions it. You can look it up later. Peter mentions it in his second letter. Okay. Do um, you remember in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus, in verse 31, Jesus was going to cast out the demons of this man, and they said, we are legion, for we are many. And do you remember they begged him not to send them where? Into the abyss. And begged that they could be cast into the herd of swine. So I think they knew about this. They all knew about it. I think that there are some that are reserved there, that because of their, of their sin, that they are reserved there in judgment uh, during all this time. And it was those, that those who almost corrupted the world, those who almost tried to destroy the plan of salvation, that even those, he says, when Jesus, between the time on the cross and the time of the resurrection, at a time when you thought all was lost and all was defeated and there was no hope, what you didn't know is that he was proclaiming. Now that word proclaim means to herald. It doesn't mean he was preaching the gospel to him. It means he was proclaiming. It means he was like proclaiming. He was in their face, okay? And it's like proclaiming his victory, even to them, so that they know that it has been done now. What you tried to stop and caused you to be locked up has been accomplished. And um, I don't know, maybe he did like a touchdown dance right there in front of them. I can't help but think about that. Uh, and Paul talks about it a little bit in Colossians. He says, where he talks about, we've been in dead and trespasses and sins in Colossians 2, 13. God made us alive together with him. Spiritual life, right? Are you catching it? Having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. He forgave us. I got a lot of trespasses, folks. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Whenever you forgive, you forgive the debt. That we all had a sin debt. We couldn't keep the law, the legal demands. He canceled the record. That is, he paid it in full on the cross. When you forgive someone a debt, 
You don't just say, okay, you don't have to pay it back. Somebody absorbs the loss. If they got the money from you, then you cover the debt yourself. He covered your sin debt on the cross. That's how he did it. That's how he canceled it out and set it aside. He says, nailing it to the cross. In the old days, when a debt was canceled, uh, it was nailed up in a public place where people could see the debt was paid in full. He said, that's what was happening on the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, uh, this right here doesn't come out in the English as strong as it does in the original Greek. But the authorities, the rulers and authorities, obviously with the fallen world of the fallen angels or demons, there is a rank and file, rulers and authorities. And it said he disarmed them, put them to an open shame. It means he put, an, he put on a show. He, he didn't just, oh man, I don't even know how to say it. I don't even say, uh, uh. He, 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 he humiliated them in front of everybody. That's why he said at the moment that we thought the worst thing in the world was happening, Paul's saying he was putting them to an open shame. He didn't just beat them. He paddled their behinds right in front of everybody. Okay? I don't know how to say it. But it says he triumphed over them in it. That's what he's proclaiming to them when he goes in this passage. And that's what he wants you to know. That at that time, the greatest victory. So it's not as obscure as you thought. Um, so just as God delivered Noah and his family during that time, he's kind of stuck on that from, a, from the, this world of wickedness they were living in. God delivered them through this flood that destroyed some, but delivered Noah and his family. And that ark, that ark of safety represents Jesus Christ and it represents what Jesus did for you. And so uh, that what your baptism, he says, represents what it represents, delivers you from sin and judgment. Now he reminds us, as I said, not the putting away or not the removal of dirt from the body in verse 21. He's not talking about the physical aspect that you can just go be dunked and that's what saves you. Water doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. But just like they were saved, even through water, there's an analogy. There's kind of a symbolism here, he says. We are identifying on the inside with what's happening on the outside. When you're baptized, what's happening on the inside uh, is the reality and is illustrated through what happens on the outside as you're baptized. You're making a statement. And so he's saying we're identified with Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And now we can have victory. We can have forgiveness. We can have a, even a clean conscience. He says it's not the putting away of the dirt of the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. See, the law could never do that. The law could never cleanse that. The law only made us know what we had failed. Jesus not only paid the ransom for your sin to make you alive in the spirit, but now he says he is now resurrected. He is now ascended to the right hand of the father. And here's the thing, the good conscience, he not only came to take away your sin, he came to take away your guilt. You're not even guilty anymore. See, it's one thing. See, Satan wants to, he's the accuser. He wants to make you feel guilty, guilty, guilty. But he says, I paid for that. And you're forgiven. Your sin debt is canceled. It's been nailed to the cross. And guess what? You're not even guilty anymore in God's eyes. Hallelujah. Somebody ought to say it. Amen. You have that good conscience now before God. And it's all because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So this is an example of how he turns. Are you getting this? This is the example of how Jesus takes temporary suffering that seems horrible and mistreatment. He takes all of that into glorious victory and blessing. 
Because the worst treatment ever happened on the cross. While Jesus was suffering and even while his body was in the grave, there was a greater purpose and a greater victory that anybody could even imagine going on right then. Now, let's talk about you. He's your Savior. And the struggle and the suffering and the unfair treatment you're going through right now in this world, A, is temporary. B, is working a far greater purpose and glory and victory than you could ever understand on this side. That's the encouragement he wanted them to get from this story. It's illustrated even through Noah and through your baptism. Hallelujah. All right, last thing. Woohoo! Equipped by Christ. Victory in Christ, equipped by Christ. That's why he says in chapter 4, verse 1, since Christ suffered. See, we're still talking about that. Are you still with me? I mean, we watch a movie for hours. This is even better. You've got to stay with it. So we're still talking about the same thing. And even though we're running through to the next chapter, the chapter breaks weren't inspired by God. People put those there. So we're still talking about the same thing. So since, now, this is the point. This is the point I'm getting at. He's saying, therefore, since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Take the example of Christ to heart. And he wants this conclusion to come to us that we arm ourselves. Now, the word for arm, this is a battle. Are you getting this? The word for arm is a Greek word that literally means to weaponize yourself, to put on full armor and weaponry. This is a war. This is a battle. You're battling against the fleshly nature. You're battling against this world we're in. We're to arm ourselves with what? The same attitude, the same way of thinking, the same attitude and purpose that Jesus had. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, Hebrews 12 tells us. One reason we're suffering is because we're not participating in the sins that everyone else is. That's why he says that if you're suffering, it's because, not that we never sin, but we've ceased from living a lifestyle of sin. Something's changed in our life, and that's the reason why you're suffering, because you've ceased from that. And he says, so here's what we're do. We're to live now, arm ourselves. How do we arm ourselves with his purpose? By living in the will of God, seeking to do that. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. He says, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That I'm not going to live controlled just by my fleshly human passions. That I want to live controlled by the power of God and the spirit of God and the word of God. It's not that I don't ever struggle. It's not that I don't ever have a tough time. But as a rule, I'm not living to satisfy me. I'm living to please him and to do his will. That's how we do it, he says. We're to arm ourselves by seeking to live in God's will. Not just hearing it, but doing it is what Remember the story Jesus told in Matthew 7 about the wise man who built his house on the rock versus the foolish man who built his house on the sand? When the storms of life came, the house on the sand went splat. We sing that, right? Okay, your minds just went back there. Wise man built his... Okay. But Jesus says the wise man is not the one who just hears the word, but who what? Does it. Doing the will of God. That's arming yourself with the same purpose of Christ because you believe it so well. Not that you're trying to earn something. You're doing it because of his grace and because of his love. Our minds must be transformed. And God begins to do this. As I grow in him, he begins to transform me. Remember Romans 12 too? Do not be conformed to this world. That's what he's talking about. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By that, uh, that by testing, you may discern what is the 
will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the Holy Spirit begins as we grow to transform our mind. And we can actually see this. We've talked about it before in MRIs, how that people who are like these strange people that can play such good golf, you know, and it's like my brain knows what I want to do, but my body doesn't follow through. But as they do this, they see the connectors in the brain that control the motor skills that do that get stronger and stronger. Mine would be like almost not there, okay? Um, and as you learn, so, so what happens is we've got areas of our mind that are, are stuck on some things, and we need to be strengthened in some areas, and we need to back away from some areas. So what happens is, is even they can see it now, the brain changes as you change. The connections and the parts of our brain that are the most active. There's some parts of your brain that are, are, are trouble <laughs> that you're feeding right now. You need to stop as it let him transform your mind. So we're being transformed. That's what he talks about here in these verses. And he says, you know, uh, to live the rest of our time, you know, uh, not pleasing the flesh. He says, uh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. Verse uh, three, for the time that's passed is sufficient for doing what Gentiles or godless people want to do. And he talks about all kinds of, of sensual and, and, and nasty things there. And he says uh, that, you know, you had enough time in that. He said, with respect to all this, he said um, that those people who are still doing it, they're surprised that you don't still do that. People at work are surprised that you're not saying some of the same things you used to say. Whenever, you know, you drop something on your foot, they're listening to see what words come out of your mouth. I mean, it's just even little things like that. But it can also be with big things of different addictions and different things that you do. These things begin to change. And you watch it. Has this not happened to you? Those people that are around you, they begin to get bothered by you. You're not getting high with them. You're not getting drunk with them. You're not doing the things that they used to do. And you would think that they should be proud of you. I had a friend like that just always try to knock me down when I was young. Later on in life, he says, you know what? I know I gave you a bad time when you made a change. And we saw the change in you. And I know I tried to make fun of you. And he said, I tried to knock you down. He said, but I want to tell you, deep down, I was hoping and praying that you wouldn't fall. Because I wanted to know that this was real and not just a fad you were going through. Amen? This is so powerful. But he says, this can happen. That they, they may do that. They may do that. It says, but know this, know this, that God is the one that's going to judge. All right? Now, this is another weird verse. I'm going to end on it. It says in verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And right before that, he tells us that those who are maligning you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the, the living and the dead. Did you see that in verse 5? Everybody? Okay. And then this verse. Now, when he says this, there's this other, there's this other part of arming ourselves is having a perspective of eternal life. This is temporary. Are you with me? Now, this doesn't say that the gospel is being preached to those who are dead so they get a second chance. That's not what he means. Remember, he's writing to people. Some of them are suffering. Some of them have died and some of them have been killed. The gospel was preached to those who are now dead. When it was preached to them, they were alive. And they embraced the gospel, but now they're dead. And the implication is they died because of their faith in Jesus or they died without reaching that resurrection. They thought if they died before the resurrection happened, that something how, you know, they missed it. He said that it was preached to them. They're now dead. And even though they were judged, 
Even though many of them were murdered and killed, they were judged in the flesh the way people are, I want you to know that even though it seems like their faith cost them their life and it was bad, he said, I want you to know that that happened that they might live in the Spirit the way God does. You remember he's just talking about Jesus in the Spirit. Even when we thought he was dead, he was proclaiming his victory. That I want you to know that even though that when they were alive, they heard the gospel and now they're dead. And even though people judged them uh, cruelly and killed them, he said, I want you to know that they're alive right now and they're experiencing this victory. That's what that's about. Let's take it home. Let's get ready to pray. We have hope over suffering because the example Jesus set before us. You have that. He is a God who knows personally how it feels to be rejected and to suffer. You have your baptism that is a visible symbol of a spiritual reality to be a reminder and an encouragement. And though resurrection or perfection is coming, you need to know that even right now you have spiritual life, which means you have living hope and you have victory. Right now, even in the midst of the mess. And that also we don't have to worry about what people think, say, or do. Our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 10, not to fear those who can kill the body, and that's all they can do, but rather fear the one who has the power to destroy both the body and soul in hell. So that's what he's saying, and that you still have hope and you still have victory even through suffering and pain. Father, help us to 